All right, welcome everybody to the Area 51 Hockey Podcast. We are so pleased and thrilled to have with us a special guest uh, for a special episode this week with former Canuck owner and Grizzlies owner, uh, Arthur Griffiths. Arthur, how's it going today? Great, uh, particularly because we're now talking about hockey. Exactly. Always enjoy that that topic. Makes everything just that much easier to deal with. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember we had the stoppage for the work when they stepped, when the league uh, went on uh, on strike and there was a full lockout. That was painful. So let's get back to hockey. That's <laughs> yeah. it's definitely been weird. And Sean's actually he celebrates his birthday uh, coming up, so he's going to have the first opportunity to see a hockey game during his birthday, which nice. obviously you know something that never uh, happened you know, before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let alone a playoff game. If I was just going to say, especially because I think the middle of June would be the outside. So this is great. <laughs> Let's, uh, I don't care when they play anymore, it's as long as they play. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is kind of a, obviously an unprecedented time um, for the entire world as a whole, let alone the sport uh, itself. Mm-hmm. But uh, we did have so much to celebrate in the past year. It feels like so long ago uh, mm-hmm. since we were able to watch the Canucks play and uh, in their 50th season. Um, I wanted to kind of go into your experiences with the Canucks and uh, kind of get the the behind the scenes scoop that so many of us don't get the privilege of of understanding thoroughly. Um, for your time with the Vancouver Canucks, like, was there any particular memory that stands out that if you're looking back at like the '94 run or any of those that stands out as like your favorite memory? Well, it's really interesting you should say that because uh, what makes the memories for me, uh, of course, the people that I was involved with or, or, or that I spent time with. And if you had to pick a moment in my quasi 19, 20 year career there uh, with the Canucks, it would definitely have been uh, uh, game five, uh, which was aired last night. Uh, re, re, rewind, as they call it. Uh, in game five, Toronto Maple Leafs, Vancouver. Uh, double overtime win, Kirk McLean, uh, not Kirk McLean, Greg Adams. And what was memorable to me, and I and I tell the story because I think it's uh, it personifies, I think the the way we approached as owners, our family, the team, is that my father had passed away about six weeks earlier, and this is now the, towards the end of May, and this was early April when he passed. And um, my, uh, you know, we we beat them in double overtime, and I and I'm heading out of the suite in the Pacific Coliseum down to the ice level to be part of the Campbell Conference Trophy presentation. And I hesitated and I stopped at the top of the elevator and I thought to myself, wait a minute, something missing. So I literally was, if the elevator was there, I probably continued on my way because it's, you know, it's euphoric and it's a celebration and your brain doesn't really always necessarily work as it ought to. And I was waiting and I was waiting and I said, something's, I'm missing something. So I literally ran back and I grabbed my mother and I said, mom, you're coming with me. And she goes, no, no, no. Just typical for her. She says, no, I don't want to do that. I, that's not me. And I said, no, no, you're coming. So I grabbed her and to this moment in time, and last night it was on the video replay of the game was a picture of myself, my mom and Trevor Linden holding the Gamble conference trophy at the end of the game. Um, The kiss. Clearly not. Clearly not, yeah, clearly not the right <laughs> trophy that we really, really, really wanted, but uh, certainly one of my favorite moments in the history of my life, in, in my whole life, period, and uh, to share it with my mom. 
Yeah. That was That's definitely really cool. Yeah. I got goosebumps watching it game. last night. Where are you? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Wow. Of course. Technical. <laughs> so obviously another huge you know member of that team and obviously, you know, someone that I think, you know, while we think we know a lot about, you know, I think, you know, we're both finding out more about every day is Pat Quinn. Yes. Uh, so just, to, you know, tell us about your relationship with him, you know, how he came to be part of the Connects organization and obviously, you know, how instrumental he was in, you know, the construction of that 94 team. So great question, Malcolm. I uh, recall uh, this really well because it was really a major, major milestone, of course, for the franchises, as it turns out. But at the time, it was obviously a major undertaking. So at the moment, at this point in time, about 1987, uh, we were in uh, we were in some turmoil, and it was really due to it was management void, and it was off hockey management void. Um, and uh, we had in '82 gone to the Stanley Cup Finals, and then it was just like a, a fizzle. Uh, there was not a lot of good drafting. There was not a lot of good uh, feeling in the community. Um, and it was it was pretty pressure packed. So um, my father said to me, uh, I want you to meet. And his name was Coley Hall. Let's meet with Coley Hall. He's an old time Vancouver hockey. In fact, one of the original owners of the Vancouver Canucks, because we need to find we need his input on, on who we should go after. So we met with Coley and he uh, he said to my dad and I over lunch and he said, Coley, what would you, uh, you know, who, who should be uh, our super boss, I think is what we call them. And he goes, uh, you know, general manager to, to another terminology. And he goes, I have three names for you. And he's got a very deep voice and a graspy voice. And he goes, three names, Pat Quinn, Pat Quinn, and Pat <laughs> Quinn. <laughs> I, I'm sitting there and like, I'm, I'm not 30 what was I, 34, uh, something like, no, maybe 30. And I said, I said, well, he's coaching the Los Angeles Kings. And Coley says, call his agent. I said, what? He says, don't worry, call his agent. His name is so-and-so. And I go, all right. So this was uh, November and early December. Uh, I had, uh, you know, set up a meeting to meet with his agent in Atlanta, Georgia. After the governor's meetings in Florida, every year there were meetings in Florida, and there still are. Um, more, more often, I think every every other year now. But we went, we had these meetings, and I and I so I went into Atlanta, and I met with them, and his agents informed me that he says Pat is available, and I said, how so? You know, when you're coaching another team, that usually means you're <laughs> off limits. And he says, well, his contract stipulated that he was available to sign with another team if the team, which is the LA Kings, did not offer him a new contract by the beginning of that season. And uh, so long story short, obviously, we uh, pounced on it, signed him uh, as quickly as I could. And my father said to me, Arthur, do not make a mistake and not give him a signing bonus in advance, like uh, upon signing, in advance of him coming to start work. Because uh, it was good. It was intended. He'd start at the end of that season, of course. And uh, long as it came out, uh, that was very important because we legally bound the contract by that bonus check, which was controversial in its own way because it got discovered that that had happened. And then what I did is I, uh, um, uh, you know, of course, reported in and probably I think it was mid-January, end of January, uh, he was coaching the Kings. The Canucks were playing and I guess the uh, expression is it. <laughs> 
hit the fan. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the, the league, the LA Kings and others were none too happy with us. But uh, frankly, I, we were just holding our ground and we were not about to back off because, it, you know, candidly, um, you know, LA, LA uh, snooze, they lose. They, they offered him a new contract. They, they, they threatened us with every, the league and the LA Kings with every lawsuit you can think of. And my dad was digging his heels in and obviously I did too. But at 30, I, I didn't, my heels weren't very deep. Um, so we, uh, we literally, uh, we won the day, but boy, it was a little bit painful in the beginning, but, uh, and it was all about someone that, um, my father would say to him, uh, in a conversation we had, uh, uh, I, all I want you to do is bring back respectability to this team. And, uh, at the question was, Frank, what do you want me to do? Mr. Griffiths, I think he used to call him. What, what do you want me to do for you? Stanley cop. And he goes, Nope. Just bring respectability back to the team. And he did that in spades, as we know. Um, and literally uh, what we did on the ice to what we did in the dressing room, to what we did in the community, to what we did for our players, current and former, and their families. Uh, you know, literally the complete, um, uh, full, uh, encompassing sports franchise to be envied and was envied by many. And to the point where... We, you know, we hired people that were, you know, Brian Burke and George McPhee and many other people in the management coaching who went on to have great careers elsewhere because they looked at us as a team that had hired, groomed, and so they, they got better opportunities elsewhere when they kind of earned their spurs. That's a great answer. Well, I was going to ask you actually about that quote uh, about him asking your dad, what do you want me to bring Mr. Yeah. Griffiths and, and him saying respectability, yeah. not a, the cop will come, but respectability. Yeah. And absolutely right, Sean. And, and, and that's the part that, you know, it even surprised me uh, because uh, I probably at 30 years of age would have said that. But my dad understood. He understood that, uh, you know, it wasn't those were the things that are sometimes and they clearly are out of your control. But what is in control is what you build in terms of an organization and how that how that personifies the uh, the community, uh, the sport, and in, in this case, and of course the uh, uh, people you you work with. So of, of course, you know probably the next guy I'm going to ask you about the the Russian rocket, the uh, Enigma himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we you know we got that lovely little video uh, from him uh, for this 50th anniversary season, uh, and you know obviously going back to his jersey retirement and all that. You know, talk to talk to us a little bit about your relationship with him. Because uh, obviously, you know, he's one of the you know guys that obviously you know we, we watch his highlights still to this day. And you know, I think you know Gretzky kind of says you know if he were to play in the league today, you know, he would only be an average player because of how everyone's caught up. But you see Pavel out there, and he still looks like he would be able to completely take over this game. Uh, so just you know what a what a special player he was. You know, obviously, again, you know, again, talk about controversy and, you know, bringing someone in that, you know, other people in the league didn't necessarily feel like you should uh, be able to, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about Pavel Bure. Well, I guess I can start with the draft. Um, we uh, we had uh, Intel, again, that suggested that he had the prerequisite number of games uh, in and or in Europe uh, to qualify for the draft year in which we drafted him. <clears throat> now, uh and we had that information from uh, scouts and that would be central scouting for the national hockey league, our own scouts. And then some scouts that we had in Europe uh, uh, that were kind of agents of ours, I suppose. 
And it was, it was, I think the number, I, I want to say eight or nine games, maybe possibly 10. Um, and so we drafted him and teams just went ballistic. They were just apoplectic. Well, this was, I believe it was 1990. Right? I believe that is. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so, so. 1991, yeah. the draft was in Vancouver uh, and it was going to be the Coliseum. Uh, we pivoted to BC place because the PE had a strike. Um, anecdotally, I suppose this is conversation in history, but so we moved to BC Place. But in advance, the problem was that uh, the New York Rangers had lodged a, a filed a complaint you know, two or three days before the draft that that said Pavel was now available for the draft in Vancouver, could not have and should not have a draft. So we spent the better part of 48 hours scouring the records around the world, uh, including every source we could come up with to get game sheets, approved, you know, proven game sheets, yeah. essentially a, a photocopy, by the way, or not even a photocopy. It would have probably been a fax copy, actually, <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a game sheet that said he played in these games. And literally it was it was spot on. It was not one more, not one less. And as a direct result of that, we won the day and uh, and uh, that was the uh, that was what was what was at stake, because uh, in the in the the next part of that was, of course, how do you get him here? How do you get him to uh, clearly he wanted to come? Uh, we had to pay uh, the Russian Federation, which was normal. There was no big deal. We had to pay uh, his, you know, his family, um, his father in particular. And that was fine, you know, because, frankly, his father was became his personal trainer really and, and and in addition to that he trained other players i mean physically because he was a an elite athlete himself uh, Pavel's father and then um and so when he got here it was uh you know that was immigration issues so we went to california and we got uh, we had to arrange for him to uh, uh, find a, a love interest so we got his uh, <laughs> got his anyhow anyhow that's just the infamous rollerblading uh yeah, um, Manhattan <laughs> Beach or something yeah. like that. So he ends up in a in a Vancouver jersey, and I remember Pat. I remember we had the press conference in the Pacific Coliseum, and I can still see the the look on everybody's faces. And there's a lot of intrigue, of course, because there was some footage, of course, on the news, but you know, not 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 what you have now. And there was this, like, okay, well, he's now going to be on the first line of the power plays, and the first line on this, and the first line on that, and the first game, of course, he. It's a great story because he he did everything but score. I mean, he did everything but score, and I don't even know quite frankly how he didn't score. But <laughs> I mean, he didn't play that much. Pat, like he held him back, and I'm going after again. I'm going, Pat, what's going on? What are you doing? <laughs> he goes, Oh, I want I want him to earn his whatever. And I'm going, Okay, I'm not going to question you. He's like this stupid <laughs> for me to question Pat, and. Uh, and of course, I think it was game two or three. It was like, okay, let him go. And just, just <laughs> Training wheels are off. <laughs> just yeah. give him the puck. And uh, and I, I wanted to tie Pat to this story too, because it's a little later on in in, in his Pat's Pavel's career. We'll get back to the to the to the moment in time we were just talking about. But I'd say uh, towards the very end of Pavel's career, uh, he was playing for the New York Rangers, and I happened to be in Toronto, and Pat was coaching the Leafs, and. Uh, I didn't even, it was one of those kind of weird things because it was in the new arena and I didn't really pay attention. I was with people that weren't hockey fans and, and all of a sudden, uh, third period and the score was 2-2. I believe Messier was still playing. 
uh-huh. the Rangers. Hey, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I look up and I said to myself, as a third period, I go, gosh, that looks like Pablo. I swear, I didn't even remember he was playing for the Rangers. I wasn't. <laughs> and, and Mark Messier gave him the puck at the blue line. And I'm looking straight at the Leafs bench at Pop. Pop did the following. He turned away. He turned his back to the play. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, I could see him. I was like, straight line. And I go, and then Pablo came in. Sure enough, take the goalie, the defenseman, then the goalie and put it in the net. And I'm going, wow. Of course he won the game after the game i said pat i said what were, what were you thinking i saw you turn away because we always had this great relationship pat and we we literally laughed all the time we were together and he goes he goes well i already knew what was going to happen i was just looking for the face-off dot it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I, I knew the outcome the yeah. yeah i knew the outcome yeah i was looking down the bench to see who's up next um, well, it's, oh, it's insane. Even in that last year of his, the 0203 season, he only played 39 games and he still had 19 goals. Oh my god! And that's obviously on you know barely I've one and a half. Since. You know, well, and you know, and that's you know obviously it'll be Russia. so cool. Obviously, they there's been a couple. I, I forget where I, where I heard it, but uh, this legendary games that they play with you know Fedorov and all those old Russian guys oh, yeah. apparently play on the same beer league team. Well, and and Putin. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, the president. Yeah. Uh, now they're. Uh, he's they're, he's uh, their uh, best player somehow. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> 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 he just I, somehow the goalie just completely panics and you know, gets right I by give him. him the puck anytime as well. But no, and he put it on after we after he started to play for, for us. And you're quite right. And I always say this story. And it's funny because I was t- telling some friends about this last night after I watched the game. I said, look. The old expression is that is as an owner or sports fans, you know, uh, you know, he he or or she uh, puts the bums in seats. And I would say that Powell was one of those people who took the people, the bums out of their seats, because as soon as he had the puck, he just didn't know what was coming up. And frankly, most of the time it was just magic. And uh, and you're right about uh, the combination of the comparison to Wayne. uh, uh, Clearly. One of the greatest player, literally the greatest player ever to play the game. But Pavel could play today for a number of reasons. One is speed, two is skills with the puck, and three his physical capability. You know, his physical uh, stature. Like he, he, he fought the game at such a pace. And I remember talking to uh, Scotty Bowman about Pavel one time, because he was on the Hall of Fame committee for Pavel, and he said, he said, Arthur, this guy is one of the best players I've ever seen. And he belongs in the league. He literally belongs in the league. He's not in the hall, I should say. And uh, and I, he and I were, were became friends, still are, Pavel. And um, because I understood the culture, I understood Russia, I understood because I'd been working with Russians before, of course, with Larionov and Krutov, and for years before that even. Eastern Bloc people uh, and players uh, are were subjected to uh, a society and a way of being brought up that is quite foreign to any of us. And and so to the extent that one of the things that happens over in Europe in those days, especially, is that you are you are uh, you have no uh, you have no control of your life. Someone else manages your day and night. And and that if anybody tries to get inside that bubble, they're looking for something. 
So there's a natural tendency for someone in that realm to feel uh, uh, threatened at all at all levels. And in some cases, it's quite legitimate, uh, whether it be safety or money or otherwise. So there was always this uh, um, fear in Pavel's mind that someone was trying to take advantage of him. Um, when he started here, it was great and it was fine and all things were good. But, you know, the, 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 I think there was pressures that came to bear in Vancouver that were uh, probably some that I don't even know about. But it was very difficult for him to go out. It was very difficult for him to be himself. Uh, uh, you know, at the end of the hockey season, you know, I'm not I'm not saying anything negative about Moscow, but imagine thinking that my my savior salvation is to go back to Moscow yeah. for the summer. What? Why? Are you kidding? <laughs> that's a great place to visit, but I certainly don't think I'd choose that to be as my summer holiday. Vacation there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Pavel, uh, you know, even it's, it's interesting because now he lives there. Uh, he lives there pretty much full time. Uh, in fact, I think he probably sold his home in the United States. Uh, so he's uh, he's back in Moscow. The last time I saw, spoke with him and saw him, he was he's there with, you know, doing various investment to sit, you know, working for various investors and oligarchs and so on and and the president. Um, he's a he's a uh, he's an enigma in some ways, but he's also uh, really when you do know him, he's a great guy. He's a lot of yeah. fun, very funny. He's very. Uh, um, I wouldn't say sure of himself as much as uh, knows who he is, I suppose. Um, it's funny because when I was with him uh, one night in Moscow, probably 2012, he sits there and uh, we go to this. He was playing and I was watching and then afterwards there was a big party. And I said to him, I walk up to the bar and I'm getting what I like to do is I drink vodka. Vodka. And he goes, he walks up and I said, oh, you want a drink? And he goes, yeah, yeah. He asked for a beer. And I said, a beer? What? He goes, I don't like that stuff. I don't like vodka. And I go, all right, fine. I'll just drink your vodka. You drink my beer. <laughs> oh, you're good to go. Uh, perfect, uh, perfect Canadian to Russian exchange, really. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. how the trade uh, relations got started. It's so true. <laughs> he's a great guy. He's, he's a really good guy. I, 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 I know that and I've seen it and I've witnessed it and I've cringed because I've seen how he's treated people sometimes and it's it's really a function of uh, someone that just doesn't want to be hostile he doesn't want to be uh, but I've uh, it's unfortunate because I personally would like to, to have been more um, what's the word uh, m more personable instead of threatened I, I think he yeah. uh, <clears throat> he has that is uh, that problem uh, not now because in Moscow nobody would dream of chasing him down the street which <laughs> it's not going to happen yeah well i did want to ask a question um because there's a lot of discussion uh especially back around that era but it's kind of lingered on just uh and i think a lot of it could be misinformation of course but uh around the time with when pavel came into the league um there's there's a lot of hearsay that uh for contracts it was Kind of like, hey, if you do this, you'll get incentivized in this way with contract. Um, and then ultimately leading up to eventually the time when he was uh, traded. Was there any any truth to any of that? Or is that just kind of all blown up out of proportion? Well, there, was, there was one story and uh, it, it started with a rumor and it was a local Vancouver reporter. Uh, I didn't want to use his name. <clears throat> and he indicated... Um, 
on, I think, Hockey Night in Canada that uh, uh, Pavel was refusing to play the right. only time I rec- I think this is the insert you're referring to, yeah. unless he got X amount of money. Right. Um, one, it was not possible uh, to happen for the following reason. That, that time frame that it was supposed to have taken place, you can't negotiate contracts. It was physically outside of the, the, the league rules to negotiate a contract at that time of the year um, because it was the playoffs uh, or the beginning of the playoffs. So you, the, the idea that that was the case, but it was good fodder for someone to create controversy around someone who probably just wanted a new contract and got a new contract, and, but it wasn't it wasn't a discussion between the management and his agent at the time. It just simply wasn't the case. So it's one of those things where uh, would that have been something on our mind as owners and management that that was something that was due? Yeah. Never mm-hmm. mind. Then he goes into the playoffs and literally lights it up and, <laughs> and, and, and made it a little bit more obvious that it was the right thing to do. But as I said, it, it was it was the right thing to do. Was it something that he maybe or his agent had a conversation with someone, but certainly not with Pat and certainly not with me. There was no there was no way we could have that conversation again, like I said, because uh, the season was uh, um, moratorium on negotiated contracts. It was a bit frustrating, but mm-hmm. it was a bit of a black eye for everybody involved. And boy, Pat was mad. Oh, he's EPR. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't get him to mad. <laughs> So do you think there was anything we could have done differently? You know, obviously, you know, again, trading a superstar like that kind of right in his prime was obviously not of the choice of the Vancouver Canucks. So, you know, is there anything that we could have done in retrospect? Do you think that could have kept him here? Was it just that, you know, he couldn't, you know, he was such a celebrity in Vancouver that he couldn't, you know, go to dinner without being bothered. And obviously, you know, something like Florida was that much more appealing to him because I'm sure he had the anonymity down there. I believe that was just that simple. Uh, you know, it goes back to what I said about when he came here. It was this inability to have some uh, privacy. Uh, you know, I remember his house uh, that he had in Vancouver, one of the only players' houses I've ever been to in my life. Uh, but it was designed in a manner in which he bought it, but it was built in such a way that it was very hard for you to see who was there and, more importantly, even get access to it. So uh, I think Florida was was essentially, as you just said, as a place that he could be more uh, uh, have more an, an anonymity and I, I I but we probably had I know and I suppose I would have certainly seen if there was something we could do to manage that better and you know in, in hindsight in today's day and age gosh it would have been worse but in yeah. those, today's day and age we would have yeah. had some probably people that would have been fully assigned to ensuring his is uh, one you you manage the relationship he has with the fans and the media much more so than now than then and secondly you probably have a place in which you uh, allow him to have his his freedom and you know look at uh, you know we just watched this uh, great great series on Netflix uh, the last dance uh, the NBA went through that and the Bulls went through that and to the extent that they managed to find a way to let some players have their freedom have their knowing that when they did come back they would be there for you but Pavel leaving was uh, was sad in fact it's a true story uh, he called me up um, one the day that he announced or was going to announce uh, he called me up and he said can we have lunch uh, again I, this is not what I do I don't I, I in my lifetime I've 
in my hockey career time frame, I probably have had with one-on-one with players, three meals. And it might've been a breakfast. In this case, it was a lunch and maybe a dinner in 19 years. That was not, so it was very unusual for me to ever, ever, ever go down that road. But he called and said, can we have lunch? And I said, okay. Distinctly remember we had lunch in Yale town or on mainland. And he told me, and I said, Oh, he says, but he says, Arthur, I just can't, I just can't function in this uh, Vancouver. Uh, I can't, I can't breathe kind of thing. And I go, you know, what are you going to do at that point? It was just the die was cast and he'd made his decision. He told Pat. And um, so it was, uh, it was time for him to move on, I guess, but I, I, I won't take, they won't take away from the memories of someone that was special uh, as player, they just don't come very often like that in like one's lifetime. Absolutely. So maybe we want to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, Connect's place and some of the things that, uh, you know, owners can do. And obviously, you know, as much as we're distracting ourselves with a little bit of hockey, tying it back into the real world right now. Uh, and, you know, just talk about some of the things and, you know, maybe Sam, obviously, I think you had some questions that you wanted to ask around here uh, just about, you know, ownership involvement and these social issues. Yeah, um, we were talking a bit earlier about kind of all the social issues going on now. And we saw statements put out from, I think, New Jersey Devils and San Jose Sharks on Black Lives Matter and things like that. And you had a lot of experience between the Canucks and the Grizzlies and then your involvement in the Olympics with kind of sports and culture and the world. And we were just wondering about your views on what franchises and what the league can do to take to with their platform on that professional leagues around the world uh, have a unique opportunity to bind a community a country a a nation uh, uh, whether it be an olympics or football championships uh, hockey of course the national hockey league and we start with the city and then it goes up to a country in some cases so as that is the benefit that the, the teams can do it's an obligation therefore to be recognized that you have an obligation an opportunity to be a focal point for um, societal changes and as we're talking today about black lives matter uh, just general racism uh, uh, of any sort I I, I find it I'm glad that I'm hearing voices today of players uh, who are not black, who are not uh, uh, other or ethnic, who are white and going, this is enough. This is going on. We have to stop this. We have to be we have to be leaders. And 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 whether it be hockey or basketball or otherwise uh, football, as I say, but it is a problem and it's a it's a massive problem. I mean, hockey is it's a problem. But. Goodness me, I, I, I've, I've watched, we'll have lots of uh, other sports. I mean, I've gone to stadiums in England and watched football. And, I, and I'm just aghast at what I hear in the stands. It's just beyond me that, that people still look and think and talk that way. But um, I think that it's, it's a requirement for us to not only stand up for our sport and our leagues and our teams and our cities, but you can shift a paradigm in a conversation at a global level. So what's going on in the United States, for instance, right now, it's going to take a mountain to move this this conversation in the right direction. And if the sports leagues 
because the politicians don't seem to figure that can't seem to get their act together. Uh, they're all worrying about getting reelected or something. But the players in sports and in business uh, it, are the people, and of course, students, uh, the ethnicities, the, the military, you know, the, the police have to come together and figure out how to get get their act together because this has gone on far too long. And I watched, for example, the COVID. COVID is where it came from is really irrelevant. Who who really cares? It's here. It could have come from anywhere. And if we want to go back in history, where did the swine flu come from? Where did the bird flu come from? It doesn't matter because, frankly, you can easily say that they were from the United States or they were from here. And I'm, I'm just sick and tired of having people make it about a, na- a nation, a race, whatever the issue is, and, uh, and, and shifting the responsibility for making be part of the solution instead of as exacerbating the problem. And, um, and so I'm really happy to hear, you know, Evander Kane and some of these others whom I know and I, and, I, and uh, you know, he's, and, and, you know, you have to stand up and, uh, I mean, I watched uh, I, I watched um, uh, some of these players uh, at the Olympics in, in Russia. And I tell you, it was there were times when, uh, you know, uh, players were being called out because of the color of their skin. And it just blew me away. Uh, and, and, and that's a that's a cultural thing there. Um, you know, southern Russia, uh, everybody looks more or less Asian because they are. They're, they're Mongolian Chinese origins uh, around the Black Sea. You go to Moscow, everybody looks like they're from. Uh, looks like Burray. Georgia, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Atlanta, Georgia. Not the white, not the black part, but the white part. Right. It's a, it's a scary uh, thing, and so and that's that's sort of the, the 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 big global thing. But if you want a sports franchise or a league, if you can create worthwhile causes, and we we're just talking about the Canuck place, um, that emanated from a, a recognition that the teams that we own or the teams that in our community have the capacity to be uh, a lightning rod for, for a, a positive shift um, on a longstanding basis, not a, not a global societal issue. So this was, this came from, we, we take a lot as teams and owners and franchises and players from the fans, from the community and from corporate. So how do you make something a little bit different? And that is give back. So we created Canuck Place as a direct result, and it came from my father and my mother years and years ago. They had a charity, and it still exists, called um, CKNW Orphans Fund. And it was a function that said, okay, we've got this fantastic capacity to bring our players together to make this unique, in this case, Canuck Place for families with this horrible uh, reality that there's a child that they have that has a, a terminal ill disease and the hospice, namely Canuck Place. So bringing the players together normally is that prior to that was very difficult. They would do their things here and there, but not usually as a group. So it was fantastic way to bring everybody together. But we brought our fans into the mix, as you all know. We brought our corporate community into the mix. And no matter what we did, there was always a piece of Canuck Place in our program. Um, and consequently, uh, others have done it now, other sports teams, uh, Washington and uh, Ottawa. And uh, that's that's the that's the whole premise of it. It's a fa- really 
recognition of who you are, how lucky you are, and more importantly, what power you have to make sure that you can give something back at the end of the day. Yeah, and obviously it's so great to see that tradition continued on until today. You know, obviously you see like the, the pumpkin carving contests and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that must be, you know, again, to me, looking back at your legacy, that's to me, you know, absolutely one of the hallmarks of it. Because uh, obviously you've seen it just grow. And obviously, you know, the impact that, uh, you know, these hockey players can have on sick kids, you know, that welcome distraction uh, to kind of see a superhero is uh, is pretty cool. And, and, and that's, Malcolm, that's a great, great comment. Because if you think about it, what I just described is sort of overview, overarching. But you ask a player that's ever played for this team, that's ever visited Canuck Place, just one-on-one, at a coffee or at a bar, what did they think? I will tell you, they will tell you a story that will make your eyes water. And it's made an impact on their lives. Never mind the child. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's why, and you know, I think obviously it's one of the other things that we enjoy so much about this current team and the culture is that, you know, you look at them and, you know, with rare exception, you go, those are genuine good people. Obviously, you know, having the Sedins retire and having them, you know, instill their legacy here for so long, I think, you know, obviously it became a a clear example of what a true pro, you know, role model should be when so many people are mistaken for role models because they're very fast or they can throw far, uh, but obviously have no business actually being a role model. So I think it's great to see that, you know, obviously Bo Horvat, you know, Pedersen, I, you know, I would think Quinn Hughes is much the same way. You know, it's great to see kind of some of these core guys on our team, you know, having such a, you know, importance in community. Brock Besser, you know, I think that was, I think the story that made us all kind of fall in love with him was when we found out that he was going to prom with that uh, girl who'd asked them on right. Twitter. Uh, so, you know, those kind of things and, you know, it makes them resonate and it makes it that much more easy to love them. So to me, that's absolutely, uh, you know, connect places is, is, you know, a hallmark right now. That this team, this team is 94. This is 2.0. Yeah. And, and there's many, many, many similarities. Uh, how they got here, uh, their character, their individuality, their skill sets, their they're growing up at the same age. They're not, uh, you know, like the, you know, the Trevors and the Pavels and others um, in those days. So there's a very, you know, if, if you want to really look at a moment in time, and it's not completely anal- analytic, analytic, it's not an analysis that's complete, <laughs> but it is, you've got, you've got an awful lot of similar stories here that, that makes uh, me personally, and I think a lot of fans think that this is, this is for real. And it's going to be here for a while. And because they're also, I also witness them and I see them from time to time because I'm a member of the Canuck alumni and we go to events together and I see them and I see them with each other. And, you know, there's the, 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 the one kid I didn't mention, but it's because, you know, there's so many to mention, but Jake Bertanen. And Jake is a kid that uh, I, I get it. I understand what it's all about with him, to be honest with you. And Jake is when I did this uh, Jersey night uh, at the uh, Canuck puck drop during the, this season, I came off the bench because I, I came off the ice, I should say, onto the bench and I turned down and I was heading down the tunnel and he leaned back and he high-fived me and he goes, way to go, Mr. Griffiths, like that. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, the other guys were, you know, polite and respectful and so on, but he was like, because obviously he grew up here and whatnot. And, uh, and I thought, wow, there's a kid that's present. I guess is what I would say and quite aware. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty, it was a cool feeling for me, but I thought it was a signal to me that this kid's, this kid is here and he wants to be here and he, he he's a game changer clearly himself. 
Uh, you know, he's one of those guys. You could just see him be the Greg Adams in game five, 90, uh, 94. <laughs> right place. That would be a hell of a legacy for him, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know, like, with with everything that you did in your time with the Canucks, you really set the bar uh, very high uh, for, I think, the entire fan base uh, to to look at and, and set their expectations for what this team is, what it can be, and what it will achieve both on and off the ice. And I think one of the things that is such a, a, a prideful thing for Canucks fans is is to be able to connect themselves with this franchise and this organization for those reasons, because we know that the know the good that the Canucks are capable of doing. Uh, we've seen the history of it, uh, and we can get excited about the future uh, of the franchise based off those things and the characters that we've now fallen in love with uh, of the new kids that have come in. Um, and it's exciting to hear uh, how excited you are as well of of the yeah. future for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, I, I'm totally. Uh, I'm I'm stoked. I I think these guys. Uh, uh, one 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 is they play a game that we all like to see. They mm-hmm. play a game. Uh, will there be players that will need to be fitted in because of timing or size or injuries and so on? But I I'm very very uh, uh, complimentary towards the management team and Jim Benning in particular for creating or well, taking a, a really re- quasi turning the whole franchise upside down, like top to bottom, virtually at every position, and made us better. Now, are we where we need to be to win the Cup? Probably not. But can we win the Cup this year, by the way? Yes. No question <laughs> about that in my mind. No question. I don't think – and that, you know, that sounds silly, but no, it's not. Because what happens is that when you get to the playoffs, normally there's attrition. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not going to be attrition this year. There's going to be an enthusiasm and excitement. More importantly, the players – are almost they don't know what the playoffs are all about they, they're not they didn't just finish 82 games and then go into the playoffs they're just going into the playoffs and they're all they don't quite frankly sometimes they don't know any better <laughs> uh, you catch lightning in a bottle and you see what happens and i think there's some some uh, there'll be some surprises for sure and i i'm excited to see where where it'll take us but because uh, uh, they do have the skill uh and, you know, being at pretty much full health, it sounds like Josh Levo maybe not ready to go for puck drop, but, you know, potentially having Furlan back, you know, obviously having a full healthy decor is going to be essential for us. You know, Marky is healthy again. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you're right. Like, obviously, there are some pieces there. And, you know, I, I, Brock's, the line Brock's I keep healthy. using is Brock's, yeah, healthy. Brock's back. Brock's healthy. Obviously, you was... know, the addition of the Foley, I, you know, our, our top six. I don't know yeah. if our top six has ever looked this good. I completely, I completely agree. I, I, even in even in '94. Yeah. yeah. Even in 2011. You know, I, yeah. I think you know. Obviously, again, it's been one of the very small little silver linings. It's been nice to go back and watch some of those old games and you know yeah. watch them a little bit more unemotionally and objectively because, of course, you know, uh, and you know maybe with a couple less beverages too, uh, so you can <laughs> kind of really really see the game. And couple, uh, and you know, to me, it was interesting. You you like that. 2011 team, how that deep our defense was, yes. you know, Bieksa, Salo, Edler, Hamhuis, yeah. Ballard. Uh, but like, you know, we had pretty much six top four defensemen, you know, yeah. constantly. And and right now, you know, again, depending upon your perspective of, you know, Tanev and, and uh, Edler, yeah. Myers, you know, everyone's kind of got a different opinion on. And then obviously Quinn Hughes, who everyone loves, but, you know, 
but can Marquis make up for all those things, you know, in a playoff situation, you know, maybe he can. So, you know, obviously I, I've heard crazier things in the last three months uh, yeah. than, than the Canucks could go on a run here. It's kind of well, the line we, I keep always using. If we, if we, uh, if we have the puck, it's hard to play against us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about the defense, which is right. And I always remember Pat saying, uh, he said, uh, you know, about his defense is my defense is really good. If, if we've got the puck. <laughs> Doesn't really I matter. like that. <laughs> yeah. I got great defense as long as we got the puck. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so. again, it kind of ties into one of the other things that we'd obviously love to talk about is, you know, we, you know, spend so much time speculating and obviously on, on Jim Benning and, and, you know, what's going on, you know, with the current organization. Obviously, you know, we recently had the, the news that Judd Brackett was let go. Uh, and there just seems to be this, you know, pattern of people like Trevor Linden, Lauren Henning, uh, Victor DeBonis, you know, good, reputable people who seemingly, and obviously by some of the reports that we get, if they seemingly have a dissenting opinion from Jim and John's, seemingly don't end up staying around too long. And, you know, obviously ownership's involvement and obviously your experience on, you know, what's the difference between, you know, having the same unique vision, which it seems like Jim and John are, that's what they're trying to do and risking, a, you know, potential echo chamber situation by not having those dissenting opinions, which, you know, you see in successful organizations. And, you know, obviously you, you kind of, obviously a sports organization isn't exactly like a business, but it's a lot like a business. And you see kind of these contradictory things where, you know, you, you think that when you have a guy who's had a ton of success, you do what you can to retain him and you empower him to do more. And it appears like that was exactly what Jim Betting wasn't willing to let happen was to empower him to do his job more and allow Jim to focus more. Because as a as a general manager, obviously, there's so many things that you can do. You can't do it all to the detail that you want. So, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, kind of empowerment versus, you know, having a circular or a singular vision? Well, I doubt that Jim had any any uh, uh, impact on Trevor or Victor uh, to bonus, because, frankly, those were those are positions that are between owner and Jim in terms of hierarchy. Um, but I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, gosh, if you think, if you think I agreed with Pat every day or anybody else that I worked with, uh, um, that was pretty unlikely. Uh, we got along. We, we certainly had our disagreements, but at the end of the day, I always had the philosophy and this is my view of business, never mind sports is that, if you hire someone to do a job, for goodness sakes, let them do it. And if you think that they're, the job that they're doing isn't um, uh, good enough, then you replace them. But to the point that someone is being uh, let go that you think makes your team better or your business better, I don't understand how um, you, you let that happen because it just makes no sense to me. Um, I don't have enough information. I just know the philosophy I always had is that you know, my, my, my function, so remember when I hired Pat, I hired Pat to, as an example, as the most obvious example, um, I, he was there to run the hockey team. I, you know, I was to run the business and, and whatnot, but he ran the hockey team and, and, and that was what he did and did it extremely well, obviously. Eventually he had to coach the team, but, uh, which he was pretty good at too. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, uh, I'm, 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 singularly of the view that uh, you hire people, you, you let them do their job. My philosophy was that uh, also is that 
as an owner, uh, management owner, whatever, um, it was my job was to get them what they need to be successful. In some cases, it's money. Some cases, it's advocating for something at the league that would be oh, schedule related, alignment related, whatever the case may be. Um, an airplane, simple thing like that, and buying an airplane for the team so they weren't so fatigued. The best doctors and the nutritionists and all that stuff. The rehab equipment, those were the things that I could control. And then at the end, of, that's at the hockey side. And then the other side was the fan experience. Make sure that fans knew, you know, you touched upon the fans uh, and, and, and it'd be remiss to not do this. But, you know, the fans, um, yeah, we had the privilege of writing the checks uh, as owners. Um, but, uh, I mean, the fans are the people that we don't have a business without them. I remember, you know, my father and Pat used to talk about this, is that our fans... The fans are like a company or they're the trustees, they're the shareholders. And whether they come to the games, whether they watch the games or whether they listen, those are the shareholders. And maybe there's a class A and a B and a C share in a corporate structure, but that's what they are. And, and don't forget it. And frankly, if you approach it every day like that, uh, you know, uh, even to this day, I walk down the street or I go to the arena somewhere uh, here or elsewhere in the world and, uh, and someone says they're a Canuck fan. I immediately think about why, where, how have we met before? Because I want to know that there, you know, that there's someone like me in my world that genuinely believes and cares that they're real, uh, really respected for what they did. Even if, as I said, if they just, you know, uh, you know, you guys, I know how much you deeply love this team and, and, and that's what's important, but for goodness sakes, don't ever as an owner or management think that that's not why you exist exactly why you exist yeah it's for those for those people like yourselves well no, obviously it is that's a you know interactive process and it's you know thanks for uh, for sharing that information so you know we're i guess next is uh, the return to play uh yes. you know what do, what do you think uh you know it looks like they're dead set on making it happen obviously uh finishing it will be a completely different story but uh you know, what are, what are your obviously thoughts on you know, this uh, this crazy time? <laughs> exactly. Crazy time. Uh, I was not disappointed at all that they decided to go to 24 teams um, for two reasons. One is, is that there are a lot of teams that were close to the to the edge of, of in or out. And they were in the last 10 games of any season. There's going to be a lot of changes. So why not expand it for that reason? And more importantly, the fans want to see hockey. So why not make it more interesting? So I'm I'm thrilled. Uh, I think the, the, it's the best of the best of a bad situation. Um, I I would have hated to see the. I'm surprised that they're doing it. Uh, they made the decision to do it, but in, as time goes on and weeks go by, it seems to me like it's going to be fine. And the, you know they're doing their mechanisms to make sure that everybody's safe. Um, but at least you've got some closure. And that's the part that I'm excited about is we've got some closure to a season. We start up again. Uh, it goes to show that there's a desire and a willingness by the players and the owners to get, get back out there and do what they love to do. And, um, and it's also what's, what's also more interesting is certainly it shows to the me that uh, the ownership and the management of the league has recognized that, um, yes, we're all about making sure that there's the revenue and that there's the tickets and that there's a, you know, the, the, the things that make drive the machine. But 
that's not what's happening here. This is about closure. It's about bringing bringing uh, the fans back. It's not the perfect situation, but nobody's selling a ticket. Nobody's nobody's making great gobs of money, if you will. Is it just a let's just uh, do our best to show that we can make it work. Now, if the if the virus was still wildly out of control right now, this this wouldn't be happening. But I think it's a it's a great uh, testament to all parties, including and and more importantly for us as fans, to be able to. Uh, <laughs> I've been I've been stir crazy. I can only watch so much rewind hockey. Yeah, it definitely. You know, again, it it has a completely different feel to it when you're watching the rewind, and obviously, you know, it's not the complete game. You don't have the commercial timeouts, and of course, you know the outcome. But you know, as I said, it has been kind of cool to wa- go back and watch some of those games and. You know, like the game seven of the 2011 final, we actually had a pretty good first period. And I did not recall any good moments from that game. But, you know, we actually started <laughs> that game pretty good. So I was like, huh, I, uh, I'd forgotten that. Yes. And if you watch the game last night, 1994 against the Leafs at the end of the first period, we were down 3-0. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one 4 3 in overtime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah oy, crazy. Oy, oy, oy. Yeah, exactly. No lead was safe back then, eh? No, 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 not at all. Yeah, well, I've kind of gone back to that now. Uh, kind of similar hockey again. A uh, lot of high-scoring, high-skilled games. Um, yeah. We've kind of gotten away now from the, the dead puck era, and uh, we're starting to see a lot more offense uh, winning games, and it's exciting. I, I like the comparables that you had between uh, the 94 team and, and the current team today, because uh, mm-hmm. I think there's just countless uh, that you can come up with, but uh, it's interesting to see that style kind of per, um, yeah. come to the to the forefront again. Well, these players uh, today on this team, because 11, 2011 was, uh, you know, clearly perhaps perhaps the most talented team. But 2011, I I, I think that the 94 team and the 82 team and the and the 11, the, the three final teams finalists. Um, they all, uh, I can speak firsthand that the 94 team and the 82 team, those players will be friends and family for life. Uh, it didn't seem to me that that was the way the 2011 team was off the ice. Uh, on the ice, yeah, they, they were talented and they were strong, but I didn't think that there was the same kind of bond that you were going to go through the wall or stand up in front of a bullet for your teammate. This is this is what I think this team is building right now. Uh, you can see it. You can see the uh, you know a player gets hurt. You can see someone coming in to defend. Uh, even the, even if it's not their job to do that, there's a there's a you know you don't pick you don't take my guy down. There's a and and Brock is an absolutely quintessential captain. He's just not Brock. Sorry, uh, Bo. Oh. I I really mm-hmm. like his uh, um, his approach in the community, of course. He's literally, God, it's the gosh, he's Trevor Linden 2.0. He really yeah. is all and off the ice. I, I, like how he plays the game, how when he has the puck, how he knows the opportunity, the moment in time in history when you need to be that guy. I mean, even in the game last night, I was watching, I keep referring to it. But he was part of that play. He, would, he circled at the blue line, sorry, at the faceoff dot, threw it back to, I think it was Babbage who threw it on the net, and Abbott was there to bang it in. Uh, it was that uh, right just into the second overtime. So it's uh, that's the moment in history. And, you know, game seven and in that next round against the Rangers, two goals, Trevor Linden. 
Yeah. Bo Horvath's Horvath's that guy as well. That's awesome. Well, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure having you on. This has been kind of the highlight, I I think, of all all of our weekends um, leading up to this. We've been so excited to have you on and talk to you. There's I mean, not much you're... to do, Arthur. There's not much to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I look forward to running to it Earl's sometime soon, though. Oh, me too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, any, yeah. any anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. 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 Anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Just to have some kind of freedom. Um, I yeah. did want to give you the opportunity here, just in case you had anything that you wanted to to plug or any final thoughts, um, anything that uh, if you have any events that are coming up. I know that uh, your daughter has the Backpack Buddies event that's coming up, so we wanted to uh, bring a spotlight to that. But if there's anything that you wanted to close off with. Yeah, I, I, I was just about to say that uh, is something that uh, very proud that the legacy of giving back to, to, to our community, if you will, uh, in a meaningful way, in a very hands-on manner that uh, Emily Ann is, uh, uh, is, uh, has taken that mantle in a very, very big way and making such a difference in people's lives on a day-to-day basis, of course, on weekends. And it's not just as we know, it's not just the, the burden that a family has because they can't feed their children. Backpack Buddies is, takes the burden off of, uh, other family members and knowing that someone's going to get get uh, a balanced weekend food is uh, is uh, is remarkable and more importantly uh, i clearly take my hat off to her so any uh, any opportunity to support backpack buddies people should try to do their part to uh, recognize one and learn more about it uh, mm-hmm. i'm sure sam you've probably got the details on it uh, but it's just a really really proud for me to know that she's uh, done that and uh, and is doing it from the goodness of our heart, there's no other means, there was no other, no other gain uh, or, or purpose than that. It's been pretty cool to watch. I remember the first time I talked to Emily Ann about this, I think it was maybe the first time I met her. So it had been 2000, 2011, 2012. And she's kind of built this from the ground up and it's been such a passion project and she's poured her hard work, tears, blood, sweat, everything you've got into it. and. Um, for everybody listening, they're doing a cooking for a cause fundraiser with Chef Trevor Bird from from Fable, um, and the event is on June 13th. And we'll make sure to post a link to the tickets um, on our Twitter and our Instagram. Absolutely. And just for uh, anyone unfamiliar, Backpack Buddies is a program that supplies meals for kids who are dependent upon school meal programs uh, but on, over the weekends and between uh, those meals. And obviously at a time like this with all schools closed there uh, have been needed and have been stepping up to the plate more than ever. So it's a, a great local charity, obviously, that we're very happy to get behind. And let's hope that they can uh, not only expand it locally, but more importantly, expand it across North America, perhaps. Uh, Mm-hmm. I think it's it's that it's got that kind of legs and uh, and it's required everywhere. Never mind here. So absolutely fantastic cause. It's you know it's scary to find out how badly it's needed in our own backyard. Well, that's the that's a great point, Malcolm. I know people go, pardon, where? What is that possible? Oh yeah. So it's uh, it's exactly right. People didn't know, don't know, and it's great to highlight it and more importantly support it. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Arthur, and uh, we'd love to have you back whenever uh, if we were just happy that you were able to buy out some time to, to talk to us here. 
Whenever you have a boring weekend, you need to re- ring. <laughs> so to be I'd be careful with that offer. Up to be the yeah, highlight. Yeah, exactly. I'm having a lot of those boring weekends. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it so much. Thanks go so much. Let's go. From Sean Warren and the Area 51 podcast, thank you for listening and please like, share, and follow along as we continue to grow. Join in the conversation on social media. We also now have new merchandise available on our own website. You can find it there on shop.spreadshirt.ca backslash area 51 hockey podcast, and you can grab some great merch. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Area 51 Hockey Podcast. Cheers.